This was a really special episode for me to record, and I just want to open this up, not with a quote as I usually do, but just this quick verbal note since this is such a long episode. I had some technical difficulties with my microphone, and I was experiencing some pretty severe feedback during the recording. Also, I think I was a little nervous. So at various points, it sounds a little bit like I'm struggling with my words, and I promise that I was not intoxicated for this interview, but it was because I was basically hearing an echo of myself for the entire recording of this interview. But I'm really very happy with how it turned out, and fortunate that my sister had the time to sit down with me and share some of her thoughts on life. So I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did, uh, re-listening to it as I went through my edits. So, I want to say a very special welcome to Belen Ariano, my sister, who is one of the most powerful, interesting, intelligent women that I know. Totally. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with you because when I talked to Raquel, we had such a rich discussion and sharing about our shared family experience that I thought it would be even more interesting to have that insight from you, especially because I think between the two of us, you have a much more well-developed ritual and spiritual life. Just sort of over the course of the past few years, you really have built in that aspect into your life. And so one of the things that I want to talk about today is how you built that and how you've integrated or accounted for your social identity mm. in the creation of that spiritual practice. And we can talk about other things too, because you're an artist and a leader mm. and a business person, but that was why I wanted to have you come and talk on, on the podcast. Well, thank you. That's quite an intro. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So it might be helpful. I spent a lot of time in the first few episodes of my podcast kind of teeing up my personal identity and my personal struggles as somebody who's lighter skinned, maybe white passing, woman of color, and what that means for me in terms of my social identity and my journey toward identifying more clearly and publicly with my indigenous heritage, with my Latinidad. And I know that, you know, you've had a different experience in your life. And so maybe if you can talk a little bit about that social identity for yourself, what it means to you or not, and how you may be have constructed it or understand it to be now versus when you were younger? Yeah, that's a good question. Okay, it's a good place to start. I consider myself Latina. I'm also fine with Chicana, Latinx, Mexican American is more of a stretch only because that's more of identification of like, I feel less of a cultural nuance and cultural identity and more of like a, where am I from? Because I've often gotten the question, where are you from? I am. I always think like, oh, if you got mom's skin coloring and dad's bone structure, I got dad's skin coloring and mom's bone structure. And so in California, that equates very easily to being Mexicana or Latina or Mexican-American. 
But as you go to other places around the world where that's less common, you get, are you Persian? Are you Iranian if your hair is longer and straighter in the moment? Or are you Indian if you happen to be traveling in Nepal? And so it, it kind of stretches. So I, I kind of have always gotten the question of like, where are you from? And what they mean is like, what is your kind of, what, what is your racial background? And, <laughs> and so I always say like, oh, I'm like Mexican, German, Irish, African-American, Native American, all mixed together and, and basically everything except Asian. And so if you, if you yeah. look at 23andMe, it does show us as having some East Asian heritage. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> so you got, you can claim everything. There Except you go. Australian, yeah, Mongolian. Yeah, great. I was like, I, I, th- I was like, after me, my kids can't claim some things, you know. Well, you know, there's a certain level of, of, they wouldn't be able to get scholarships for certain things after me. <laughs> I always was like, I need to marry a like a black Asian man to make sure my kids have everything. But, but so I, so when I say I'm Latina, to me that's like culturally more than anything that we grew up around dad's family. Primarily, like lots of cousins in in Gilroy, the city, with lots of good traditional Mexican food being cooked at home because mom learned that from our grandparents on dad's side, and and we had we made tamales and uh, there was a mix of Spanish in the home. Um, both of our parents speak Spanish, even though mom learned that when she lived with with dad. So I always feel very Latin that our that our family structure was that way. So when I when people ask me like culturally what do I f- identify as I I tend to e- easily identify as Latina even though I come from rich heritage and background. What's changed over over the years is that kind of my 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 movement in the world has kind of shifted me out of just being from our small town of Gilroy, where things seem simplified like you know. You know, our grandfather had the first Mexican restaurant and I had friends that would go to quinceañeras and I had friends that were far, there's farming there. (laughs) So I switched from that to like traveling the world and having, I would say, experiences and personal beliefs that stretched me far, far beyond kind of this identity of like how I operate. And then even today, my traditions and what I do on a daily basis don't always line up to kind of what I would say is my like cultural upbringing. So I'm no longer Catholic. I don't really practice. I, I observe with people that practice, but I don't actively participate in any kind of traditional Christian holidays and feel more connected to Buddhism and Hinduism, which we explored as children and has maintained in my life. But Buddhism and Hinduism and New Age practices and kind of new, yeah, a a bunch of other different practices that like don't at all line up culturally. So (laughs) growing up, I felt very much Latina, Mexican, American, Chicana. In Gilroy, it was like, that's how I identified. I, you know, I remember, you know, wearing baggy pants and crop tops and having friends that were cholas or uh, friends that weren't, that were in AP class. And I felt very fluid in both of those worlds. And then going to Princeton, I very much felt, felt Mexican and Latina because it felt very other. So then going to a private Ivy League institution, 
if you read Justice Sonia Sotomayor's book about her experience at Princeton, I very much identify with her book. Um, and I felt very other there and figuring out who am I in the midst of kind of high education and, and privilege and where do I fit in the midst of that. So, but basically that's where I had a lot of questioning of who am I and what's my worth and what's my value and, and had, had a lot of struggles. Coming out of that and then having to find myself again, de- having to deeply search for myself and realize who I was, kind of launched me on a path of self-exploration that goes far beyond kind of whatever you consider your cultural heritage and into strange realms of uh, new experiences, potential appropriation, trial of basically anything kind of under the sun over the last 15 years of my life. So what I'm hearing a lot is that... in forgive any change in the sound of my microphone because I'm playing around with the settings a little bit. I think it sounds a little bit better like this. So what I'm hearing a lot in is that when you were in Gilroy and we were growing up, you felt surrounded and contextualized in a way that like made sense. Like you belonged and you were not, I mean, you had othering experiences like being followed around stores and having those kinds of experiences (laughs) of of institutional racism yes but socially and family wise you felt secure in your context and your identity yeah yeah I felt like growing up in Gilroy like we had the quintessential large Mexican family that would get together on holidays I mean I have memories of us being like Sunday, we would be going to church at San Juan Batista, and afterward we would get our and Mexican hot chocolate, and that has the cinnamon in it, right? And we would go home, we would make that, and then Dad or Mom would put on some Wailing Vicente Fernandez like best of hits or something, and we would have hot chocolate and pan dulce, and I have memories of that being quite regular in our early time of of Gilroy before our family started kind of like falling apart and getting into arguments and doing all the things that like large struggling families do. And so that like, and then making tamales at Aunt Marina's house over the holidays and having all the women in the kitchen making tamales, tons of tamales, and then doing midnight mass. Yeah. Gilroy was also heavily Latino. Everybody around you, for the most part, you were Latin or having similar experiences. Yeah, you were Mexican or white primarily. I mean, there was a very small minority of African American or Asian population in the town. And then, yes, there were differences of like, okay, how Mexican were you? When did your family get here? Did you grow up speaking Spanish as your first language? How dark is your skin? How dark is your skin? There were all those questions of identity where where I felt like yeah, was I a chola? Did I shave my eyebrows and pencil them in or use my brown lip liner? Like, not completely. Did I have friends that did that? Yes. You know, <laughs> did I yeah. walk this edge of like, to some degree, get doing AP classes and, and getting all my grades done and being like the good, a good daughter with, with kind of hanging out with the wrong crowd and, and going into parts where it mattered what color you wore red or blue and being aware of kind of the the struggle having friends that like needed to work and asking my parents like oh can I get a job too you know what you know and they're like no your job is to get good grades so like I very much felt like 
part of those worlds, even though I wasn't. With dad being a doctor and making good money, there was a level of class abstraction that kept me out of being fully integrated in that way. Um, but yeah, I feel like Gilroy had that encapsulation of everything from people that had just kind of got, come here from Mexico and were seeking a better life and were working really hard and were usually working in kind of low entry wage positions and things like that all the way up to um, people that had been there for multiple generations that had built wealth, that had built like local companies or local careers and were kind of very well off. And all that spectrum could be seen across the Mexican and Caucasian population. And within it, I, I felt very much Latina, very much Mexicana, like kind of in that mode. And then getting out of it um, and going to like a private institution on the East Coast where there was no large group of Latinos and <laughs> where basically if you were, uh, you know, black or Asian or Latin, you kind of could band together a bit. That was very different. Then there was like a very different sense of othering. It felt very, it felt very disorienting. It was very hard. Even dating was hard. And that was like never, never challenging for me growing up. And so my whole sense of self got kind of put into question in college and in a different environment which, which felt very alien and, and not not a, not easeful so it's funny because I feel like we had sort of opposite experience <laughs> like yeah being, so for me being at home and growing up was sort of a in-between experience I wouldn't say I felt othered because I felt kind of like both and neither mm-hmm. in Gilroy. Like, I was part of our family, but not visually, not fully, not enough one thing, but then, like, also not the other thing. And then going to to college, I did not have the strong othering experience you had, but I feel like I sort of drifted a little bit I also didn't really identify with, like, the rich white people either. And so floating in that middle. But I was definitely more comfortable than you were. I didn't experience the animosity in your face racism that you did. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember we had a we had a fight, like, this is my graduation or your graduation. And we were talking about it, and you told me, you were like, you, you didn't have these experiences. Like, it was like real animosity. Yeah. And it was, and it was like, that was like kind of the first time that I was more aware of the challenges that you faced, and that I felt this diversion in our experiences, even though we were related and we're sisters. And I think at that time we had a good rela- relationship. That was the first time where I was deeply aware of my white privilege. And I think it was a good experience for me. <laughs> um, it was uncomfortable. Because, like, it's like, oh, I want to I wanna share the experiences of my sister. But I couldn't. There was, like, freshman year I went to... Uh, freshman year I went to... Like, a, it was freshman year hang, and somebody did, like, a costume party, and the thematic was, like, blood in, blood out, bound by honor or something. And I went to, like, a party where everyone was dressed up as cholas and vatos. And really at Princeton? Yeah. And it was with friends, like people that I oh, wow. would still consider friends. But it was this odd it was 
it was it was your freshman year you're getting to know people and it was this odd experience of your culture as caricature well it makes me still emotional I mean I talked about it in therapy a long time ago and kind of went through the process of assimilating in that way of like having a good time and showing up in good in good spirits to get to know people but also recognizing that you're in a party that feels very familiar but is a costume party (laughs) so things that was kind of freshman year I remember that stood out I just remembered like you know giving advice on helping people dress up for it or showing up myself with it and it was all in good humor but it was but it was very much my real life being a costume. And I think also, like, that that life, right, the cholos, what color to wear, how you did your eyebrows, like, that came with real danger and emotional cost for the people for whom that was, that's their life. Yeah. That yeah. when it's a costume, doesn't exist. Yeah, and and, and 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 like, and it's just like okay, like no, it doesn't exist. And like, even if it's, it's fun. It's not. It's just not fun. You know, it's just like okay, that's my like, a part of you just misses home, and you're like, what a strange place I'm in. That like, would take something that's like, home, and make it kind of a fun, fun costume thing it's just it's just it's an extremely disorienting sense even outside mm-hmm. of saying like okay there's real burden that comes with this it's just saying like okay it's just strange it's, it's a strange familiar experience. setting but for people it's dress up yeah it's like oh that's my that's literally like i could go next week and go see my friends and kind of be and this would be normal or i could be here and it's a game so things like that, or, you know, like that, that stuck out. I remember I had some therapy around that. And then the other one was like, you know, I had some good friends in physics class or calculus class. And I remember studying with somebody quite late at night and, you know, we were up doing a problem set and I was teaching some stuff to them and, you know, and then they had a realization like, oh gosh, you're actually smart. I thought everyone, you know, I thought you maybe got in here on affirmative action and you aren't that smart. And there was a vulnerability in the person telling me that that's what they thought and that they, I had revised their estimation of myself by doing homework with them. But yeah, but it's also hard because you're constantly proving yourself, I guess, in a weird way. Or if one person says that, then you have in your head, well, maybe there's other people that think the same thing and I need to prove it to them. Maybe it was just that one person, you know, but that, 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 vulnerability of being able to and you know I I thank them thank you for telling me that's how you feel and I'm glad I could change your mind that (laughs) I'm not here by a mistake that I'm actually intelligent (laughs) yeah maybe in the future you will not think that about random brown people yeah other people (laughs) so that like those they're like I think those are probably the two most prominent things that stick out in my head and there's subtle things like Oh, like, I'm, you know, I I was very much like going out and partying in my high school days and, you know, put on your high heels and wear your cute little black dress. And I realized, oh, wow, there's a whole different culture here of like, wear your khakis and your sweaters and your pearl earrings. And 
there was a culture that I was not used to, the ties for the weekends with the boys and the, it was just totally foreign to me. Um, and so there was a part of trying to catch up to that of like, okay, well, how do I fit in here? And we had a kind of multicultural advisors, residential advisors that were like there to kind of support multicultural individuals. And I, I remember going to that person and being like, I, I don't know how to really operate in this world. They didn't have very many answers, but they did have somebody there to talk to, I guess, which is a positive to the school. Yes, they were like, yeah, that's hard. <laughs> yeah, they were said, you know, maybe you should join a sorority or, you know, to try to, like, find, like, a social niche, um, which I hadn't considered hey, I, before. I tried to get, to get you over to the, the yeah. peace, love, <laughs> unity, and respect. Or go, you know, go, go, go to, go to, you know, or go to the one social club that's kind of more alternative, right, Terrace. So it's, it's interesting, but there were other personal things in my life going on. I left a very long-standing relationship, love relationship, that provided a lot of stability back in Gilroy that ended up being a very difficult heartbreak during college. And so there were other things that kind of threw me off emotionally. But it was a lot of these smaller things, year one, that kind of di- I didn't know how to deal with and frankly didn't deal with them very well that I had to excavate later on in my 20s when I got out of college, when I like realized that like I'd been kind of just taking these little things and piling them in my emotional psyche and ignoring them and moving on and that you could see it in how I was treating my body and, and how happy I was and what I was doing to myself so that that was different I think where I benefited from from a sister you know candidly is like growing up in Gilroy or always growing up behind an older sibling you look at them and you see what are they doing and how are they getting around the world and how um, how can I get around the world differently and I saw like an extreme intelligence and that you had in a way of really kind of voracious reading and you're extremely articulate and you were super smart and that wasn't always welcome kind of in the small town that we came from. (laughs) It's like, it was like when you got to Princeton, you were finally in a sea of people that were all kind of that way that were okay with kind of being, being nerds, quote unquote, And there was like a freedom in that that didn't exist in small town of like how you're cool in a small town. And I do like the saying of like, never try to be cool in a small town. Don't worry, things always get better when you go to college, because I do believe that actually. Uh, so I think I learned from that, like, so in a small town environment, my reaction to that as a younger sister was like, cool, I'll be smart and intelligent, all this stuff, I'll just keep it on the down low. And know how to chameleon a little bit and flex that out. And so going into Princeton, it was like, I was like, oh yeah, I can do all this smart stuff, but it didn't feel, it didn't feel that liberating. <laughs> and the, the chameleoning was harder. It was harder to reverse the other way and I had to do it the other way. And probably I benefit from actually doing it both ways now. I mean, candidly, I think, I think now um, there's a really good term called code switching that probably many people on your podcast have heard about. And I consider myself kind of an expert code switcher. Raquel and I were talking about talking about this because we were talking about how like when we get together like we went heavy into the into the Gilroy accent mm-hmm. you know like I noticed when I get around our cousins I get more of that accent <laughs> I do it to like bring out and be like look soy latina tambien you yeah. know like 
I have this accent, which does not exist if I'm talking to primarily white people. Watch, and so it just, it just, I just slip into it. If I watch, I'm watching a show called, that's uh, some British TV show. If I watch a British TV show for too long and I talk to my partner, Dave, like I'll, I'll have a British accent and he thinks it's hilarious. Dude. And that's the worst. If I because I was actually interviewing this Puerto Rican guy for my for my podcast, and I found myself copying his intonation and his rhythm. Dude. The same verbal tics were showing up. Yeah, and if, I was like, "This is just confusing for my listeners because, like, <laughs> who's Bernadette? Which one is she? Is she the interviewer?" Or the interviewee. Yeah, it, or I'll have a southern drawl, or when I go to Arkansas for my visits to to Bentonville for Walmart, I'll have, I'll listen to some country music, and then y'alls will show up my text. So, like, and part of, part of code switching isn't just an accent that you kind of evoke, it's also, like, the things you mention. So, very fluidly, if you're in certain contexts, I might mention my travel abroad, or I might mention family values or community values which when you get to the actuality of how the different experiences I had in my life like that might show up differently than somebody who's thinking normative traditional Christian values but when I say I really value community and connection with individuals and spirituality which is real I lived for five years and I've been involved for 10 years in in a collective in San Francisco that focuses on uh, consciousness and transformation of society with 20 other people that the, when I frame it as I believe deeply in community values and, and spirituality, it's authentic and it can speak to people across a lot of different um, walks of life. Even those who think of that in terms of kind of traditional Christian, Christian experiences. And so code switching is also that to me is like one to say different things, you know, do you ski? Oh, have you done international skiing? Do you go to Bariloche? Do you go to the Alps? You know, like knowing to ask those things indicates a certain level of worldliness. Saying, well, last last time I was in Whistler. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so there's like, that's also code switching is like kind of, and you only know those things by being in different cultures and different environments and being able to signal, okay, I've been in these different cultural environments. Don't, don't put me in the box that you normally put people in the box of. So I, I, you know, as I've gotten older, I had this fun nickname at one of my old jobs that was the Dosakis woman. You know, the most interesting woman in the world because I always it's very had true something different that I was kind of doing and and would talk to folks about. So yeah, code switching is it, it is linguistic and then it's also cultural. I do. I'm kind of curious. Just stepping back and looking back at college. When you were there, a lot of times I think when people are going through that kind of identity crisis, they hold very tightly onto their church mm. or their faith community. And that kind of gives them a through line and an identity to hold on to so that that transformational experience of college isn't quite so shattering. Mm. And so I know you know, we grew up kind of nominally Catholic and then right around high school, mom started to explore Buddhism more deeply and dad sort of started to explore danzas, Azteca. So I'm getting feedback. So I'm trying to time my comments so it comes out thoughtfully. 
And so I know when I went to college, I started to do a little bit of spiritual discovery. You know, I went to one of the, I think it was mostly um, African-American students who had like a Baptist or like more charismatic prayer session. And they did a prayer with me for grandma when grandma was really sick uh, before she died. Or maybe she was just very sick. And that was one experience. I started to go kind of more regularly regularly and pray um, at one point. Um, but, and then I did like meditation. But nothing was ever really like, like stuck. Mm. Nothing, I didn't go to a Catholic service. And so I'm just wondering if you considered a spiritual practice when you were in college. And if you think that that either would have provided some stability or you were also kind of undergoing a little bit of a spiritual transformation. God, this Um, feedback is killing me. (laughs) I can't hear it if it's helpful. I don't know. It must be horrible to hear yourself. As long as it makes me sound thoughtful and not crazy. Yeah, I can't hear anything. Okay. So. All right. So, so I have a distinct memory of being like pre-frosh the summer before at, at Princeton and, you know, lighting a small sage candle and meditating on the candle. And I had been doing Rodney Yee's yoga DVDs back at the house in Gilroy and I must have had some kind of meditation practice because I do have this like very distinct memory of kind of doing a a flame meditation where you stare at the flame and you meditate and you're just observing the flame and clearing your mind and I remember doing that even pre-frosh like the summer before classes started and then as um, I had various experiences and my self-esteem started dropping and and I, and I was losing kind of who am I and I went through that extreme heartbreak and an emotional trauma of, of, of a pretty bad, bad breakup. I mean, I had like a, and I did summer internships away from home and I was doing like, I was pushing myself to get all these experiences and at the same time I was struggling to integrate all these experiences. I, I do remember going to some meditation circles around that time. I never went to a church because I think I'd already moved past the sense that there there was, you know, our family had a very robust conversation probably when I was like 15 or 16 around the Gnostic Gospels and the history of the Catholic Church and the, the divide between... Jesus's teachings and the institution, a man-made institution governed by men in robes and the rewriting of history. And so there was, there was already a part of me that was like, didn't feel refuge in, in kind of leaning on Catholic faith or Christian faith. There was inklings and beginnings of Buddhism because mom had taken her Buddhist robes and we would go up and sit with the Vietnamese monastery monks and kind of experienced the calmness and peace that pervaded that space in the Santa Cruz mountains. So I think I had an inkling then that that seemed to make more sense to me than institutionalized religion and traditional sense, um, this contemplative practice. But at the same time, I was so young and there was nothing calm about my mind and, and I didn't have like a people I could kind of lean on. So I, I did lean on creativity and poetry quite a bit and wrote some poems that probably represent kind of how I felt coming out of there. I felt 
completely unworthy coming out of that experience of college. But but I didn't have any, like, I, I didn't at that point think I went to any Catholic or Christian or faith-based or even that much meditation. I think I, in some ways I kind of lost, I would go to meditation, but I would kind of lose it. So creativity was really, poetry and creativity were things that I kind of leaned on, on to express and get my emotions out. And even, so after I graduated, I had a startup that I was doing and I was living in New York City and I continued to like kind of vacillate between being quote unquote successful post undergrad and have, and then severely abusing kind of self-medicating to the point of like ignoring how unhappy I was that like, yeah, that, that I had a cry. I would say a crisis of self, not a crisis of faith where I looked in a mirror one day and was like, I don't, I don't recognize this person. I don't know who this person is. And I had to stop everything, had to kind of pause everything in my life and be like, okay, I can't, you know, I was doing various things. I was doing a startup and I was volunteering time and I was working with youth and I was doing programming and I had this like parts of my life that were really on fire. But I had a big kind of existential crisis as I looked in the mirror and was like, I don't know kind of who's inside the shell that's like operating this like cool life. (laughs) To, to all outward perspectives, really cool, successful life. And so I had to like pause. And none of that actually came back to like faith or organized religion or anything like that or groups. It felt very like much like a kind of a solitary con- solitary conquest. Now I'm not, actually never took the hero's journey and I don't know about that, but they, it felt very kind of like going into a pit alone. Since then, like, I've learned the power of community and connection and friendship and and asking for help. And I had a very good friend who said to me, you have family, just ask them for help. Just go home and regroup. Like, you're not actually alone. And that was the best advice I ever got, like, coming at, like, 24 or whatever, 23, 24. was like, oh, just call call your family and say, hey, I need to come home. I need to regroup. Things aren't going well. And I did that and that provided the space to kind of, to kind of explore from. When did I reach into kind of, I would say the spiritual side of things. So I think in my twenties, I leveraged a lot of, I would say traditional, traditional psychoanalytic support to put myself back together. As I was kind of rebuilding my career, it was also putting together identities of myself. And, and all of this happens, and this is the kind of insanity of life, is that all this generally happened like, pretty obscurely behind the scenes for me. I changed careers, and I, I had another good job, and I did a great job, and I got good <laughs> reviews in my job, and all of this is behind the scenes, actually being a successfully functioning, high-performing part of society. But I didn't get into a deep religious practice again until my late 20s and probably through yoga. Um, and so I was doing a lot of yoga. I had gotten through therapy. I had a successful career again. I was going to business school, and and I was I was doing yoga quite frequently, like three times a week, and it, doing like an LA style yoga. It's a little bit more physical focused than spiritual focused, but it's it's a great yoga community. After grad school, I was going to move up to San Francisco, and somebody said, oh, you're going to really love the yoga community up there. It's totally different. It has this entire kind of spiritual side of it. It has bhakti flow and chanting and all these other components to it that you don't kind of get on a regular basis in in the LA yoga scene. 
And so I was like, oh, interesting. I mean, I love yoga. And I moved up to San Francisco and I took a Rusty Wells yoga class. And Rusty's a great teacher who still teaches online. And it was a bhakti chanting class. And there was did you take drumming and bhakti. Yeah, did I did you take me Rusty. Rusty first or did I take you? I, I don't I don't know. I mean, it could be either way, but I went to Rusty well, Wells. Well, the funny thing is because, like, before you were in L.A., that's when I was in D.C. And I was doing yoga, like, five times a week like an hour and a half each time and like deep into the spiritual side of the yoga and the chanting and everything so it's interesting that we had that similar asynchronous kind of experience i think we've always we, we both have come together around the yoga experience yeah, I so I think in LA I learned the power of the sangha, which is the community or practicing yoga with other people. Because in co- pre college and high school, and then in college, it was usually doing yoga off videos, recorded videos of Rodney Yee by yourself in your living room or something to that effect. And it wasn't until I got to LA um, with grad school and where I was starting to do it regularly in classes with other people. And that was kind of eye-opening, kind of the level of contentment you had in group practice and in community through that um, and friendships through going to yoga together. And so then that, you know, moving to San Francisco, being of good body and sound mind and having put all the traditional practices of psychoanalytics and psychotherapy in my tool bag already, it was like, oh, okay. I feel very solid in who I am and now I can how do I begin playing safely with growing again because once you've broken apart as a human being and you put yourself back together and you feel very solid the most solid things are flexible and so you're like okay how do I get back to this idea of growth again and spiritual practice was a way to kind of for me to do that to do that stretching again and I'm wondering you know, you explored yoga, Hinduism, kind of Buddhism. I know that's really still important to you. And did you ever consider or look into the Danza Azteca? Like, I know for a brief while there was the guy coming through that was more like Lakota focused and sort of the whole movement toward indigenous spirituality, which I know is problematic for a lot of people and very life with appropriation but I'm just wondering you know did you feel any calling or impulse to explore that yeah I mean I think I you kind of it's like what do you have access to so I mean this is kind of funny but I was introduced to Nako Bear by somebody and Nako is a singer from Hawaii, who's deeply connected into Native peoples, Native Indigenous peoples' struggle, and voicing that, and goes on tours and kind of connects in with Indigenous people that at the community that I that I connected with, lived with, and then eventually ran and owned. We had various people come through from Indigenous backgrounds, providing drum ceremony or other other avenues in. And so I explored that and I I explored those which I, I felt connected to and 
in some ways they haven't been as adopted. This is like an interesting kind of comment on appropriation. They had they remain very connected to the indigenous tribe tribes um, and very authentic. Whereas like yoga and yogic practice has had to travel across the ocean from India, and there's a, some room of flexibility, which many I'm sure. Indian people will say is rife with appropriation, right? <laughs> like most of my yoga instructors are not actually Indian. And I took I took yoga in India or actually not in India, I in Nepal when I went hiking in the Himalayas. I took a yoga class in the morning at five AM and it's it was like a different experience. It was a little less spiritual, a little bit more exercise. <laughs> like stretches and breathing. <laughs> yeah, they have like it's like the yoga the Olympics dude, it was in like India. The dude in his pants, you know, in his sweatpants in the morning being like, stretch here, breathe there, do this. It wasn't like, oh, you know, I'm finding the next light. Um, well, it's also kind of like how Buddhism came to the United States. You know, like Zen Buddhism here is way more available to non-monks yeah. than it is in, say, Japan. Yeah. You know, it's a much more popular as a lay, uh, lay practice. As a lay experience. Yeah, lay yeah, practice, lay experience. Yeah. So in some ways, like that was, it was more prevalent and, and popular and available, I guess, these Eastern practices that had had time to kind of, I would say, be appropriated and adopted into American culture um, than indigenous. And then at the same time... Do you think that's some of the complexity? Like it's, it's easy to sort of exoticize something that's from like far away over there. But then like, you're like, oh, we tried to exterminate this. So, like, I think it's we harder to exoticize this because we tried to exterminate these people. I think it's harder because there's there's like communities and culture attached to it where hey, like is it really like is it really open? Like are, do we have enough people actually from the Lakota tradition or from a different indigenous tribe in the US? Like do they do they want to bring other non-indigenous people regularly into a room and and practice these ceremonies or are they trying to maintain their own culture and their own tribes like alive like people like culture Um, to that point do you and have you felt like you can identify as an indigenous woman or for you is that identification like you have to know and have a connection to the culture of an indigenous tribe in the United States to kind of claim that identity for yourself. Yeah, I feel like for for me, I I don't I have less of a direct identity. Like it's easier for me to say I culture identifies Latina, which is this Mexican American kind of blend, um, than as an indigenous woman. Like I. I would want to have much more exposure and experience with indigenous culture directly. We would go to powwows growing up as kids and we would have some of that exposure. I will say like even so like probably I've had more exposure to like Peruvian indigenous culture through medicine circles that I've sat in in the last five years than I have had as an adult with native native indigenous circles so growing up in new mexico you and i went to some powwows with mom and dad and would go and be in santa fe and connect with some of the native peoples there and i know we have some cousins that live up in redding and you know carly or you know raquel that you were talking to that they've married into tribe and have very authentic kind of experiences of tribe alive and active in today's world you know and I think as an adult, I've had less exposure to that actively, that active tribe 
I have had exposure to indigenous peoples when I when I've traveled and done medicine circles. And the interesting thing there is I've also had an appreciation for having a guide or somebody guiding me through medicine experiences is from my own culture and can speak my own language. So, like, it is one thing to kind of be in the jungles of the Amazon and receive uh, plant medicine from an extremely authentic local practitioner who's very talented and a group of people who are very talented, and that's a wonderful experience. And I've had probably deep, deep experiences that are much more easily easy for me to kind of digest and integrate from teachers who are of both worlds and like grew up in the United States as well as are walking in this kind of alternative world. And the did you do? Did you ever do a a sweat with our cousin? I've never done a sweat with our cousins. Um, and part of this See, is I've like been yeah, wanting to, but like I'm like at the point. That I get my shit together to do it. Like Freddie's going to be ninety years. <laughs> I the part part is like I don't know why it's such a like part of it is an, an invitation, right? Like I found many more invitations to go do kirtan chanting with. I found many more. You know, if you want to do bhakti fest in in down in Joshua Tree, it's pretty easy. It's a festival that you can go to every year. <laughs> you know? um, right. Like and, and you're right. Like a lot of indigenous practices in the United States are closed they're not just open for anybody i think that there's starting to be a few more like that like that are like pan-indigenous open gatherings but i think they're pretty rare yeah and i think that you get like a really wide range of reaction to them all the way from like what the fuck (laughs) (laughs) people doing like they have no business talking about all of this all the way to like this is great we have we should share you know we we can only improve our community and our country and our world by coming together and sharing wisdom all I, of that so i think there's a, like a wide range in between those two and if in and obviously indigenous communities are so they're so diverse they're yes like, you're gonna you're gonna have there's no like there's no like indigenous council that is yeah. like yes this is fine <laughs> and these other things are not yeah I mean I did you know when I when I took my yoga teacher training I trained with Pete Guinoso and he follows Anna Forrest um, who has a great book called Fierce Medicine which is about Anna's journey of yoga and becoming a great teacher of yoga. Um, and she actually is connected to Eastern wisdom and Native American, profound Native American ceremony, um, and explains how it helped heal quite a bit in her life. And she was gifted certain songs by the tribes that she engaged with. And so I did feel actually through through forest yoga, a deep connection to Native indigenous practices in the U.S., more so probably than any other avenue. Um, which is odd because it's not through a Native American person per se, but through someone that was led into a circle of healing. And so I think it's all about invitation, you know, and I don't know, even it's interesting, right, even in our family to have people that are in walking in those circles. And and I don't know if you've been invited to sit and sweat and haven't taken them up on it, but I haven't directly gotten an invite. (laughs) So So Freddie has invited me. He has invited me. Great. I yep. think 
I also did participate in a sweat when in my kind of like official capacity. I was part of a congressional delegation to the Lakota Nation, to the to one of the reservations there. And so a part of that was a sweat ceremony that was tended to be like a meeting of people. And we yeah. can't really talk about it, right? You're not really supposed to talk about it. So, so that's that is like the one experience I have had, but I haven't had it as like a personal spiritual experience. And I think the closest I've had was I did go see a curandera in San Francisco a few years ago. And that's probably the closest I've gotten to like an indigenous Mexican ceremony. And that was just one person. I haven't, I also haven't, well, we've gone to Danza Azteca, but mm-hmm. I think I never felt super comfortable there because I was not one of the dancers. And it lived for a long time in this funky nexus of cultural activity and potential religious activity, but like kind of not really. Mm. So like now I think there's a lot more active kalpulis that are making it a religious ceremony and that are trying to revive and regularly practice Aztec ceremony. Yeah. But when we were growing up and we went, it was kind of like cultural activity in the same Puerto Rico, drumming. Like you go, you see it, it's a demonstration. It's not like a spiritual practice. Yeah, I mean, my most authentic indigenous experiences have been through plant medicine, which is currently connected to live traditions in the Peruvian rainforest or folks, peoples that are indigenous to the Peruvian rainforest region. That's been my, I would say, most authentic experience in traveling down there and being able to experience that with with actual elders and in a in a community that I feel was mutually beneficial to the local community as well and was giving back and kind of providing benefit to to plant tourism. But that also is, you know, it's, you know, it has its own set of critique of like, you know, is it taking advantage of the local population? Is it exporting something that isn't, isn't to be there? And this goes all the way back to like, you know, Aldous Huxley and... <laughs> and it goes back to like peyote, right? Pe- peyote. They went down, they had this experience and then they published it in Life uh, magazine and blew up northern Mexico. Yeah, and a lot of it, I would say, is really well explained in the documentary How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, which is like on Netflix now and, and has a good, great book, but a lot of that it's kind of... The, it's a great book. It's in a great also Netflix series that talks about kind of the inherent challenges and benefits of kind of those those ways of self-exploration. And so, like, there's... I would say for me, the journey to kind of spirituality, like, I... I haven't had doors open or access or connection through a directly kind of native native North American indigenous group. Um, it's come through Eastern philosophy that has many avenues, right? Like even this two weeks ago, I went to a meditation in 
in the mission here in San Francisco, a Buddhist meditation group, and was able to sit and meditate with them. And so, like, it, it's mostly come through kind of, I would say, Eastern, Eastern philosophies being kind of brought to the U.S. Um, and brought to the general population, which is inherently white, <laughs> I guess. But, <laughs> but, you know, I feel very... I feel like I've had very transcendent experiences there. I have over the past 10 years explored many, many things, whether it's holotropic breath work, which is a specific type of breathing to... Ooh, I did that with Jesse. Yep. And that I, is some pretty trippy stuff. I did like a three hour morning yoga practice followed by holotropic breath work after two days of doing ecstatic dance and platonic uh, group, platonic group cuddling and had a, an out-of-body experience that was quite impactful and opened up some stuff from my childhood, which was, which actually opened up stuff all the way to when we visited, when we had Graciela come in as a curandera when I was a kid, which was Dude, here's phenomenal. the thing. Like, that experience with her, I missed out completely on. Like, I, I don't know if people thought I didn't have problems, and so they just kept me out of it, but I never participated in the cures, in the curas, I never participated in the ceremonies. I remember seeing her kind of like here and there. But so I don't think Raquel also felt like she had like a really significant connection to Graciela. And I just remember feeling like I just sort of like wasn't a part of all of that. So I didn't. So I had three. I have three distinct memories of Graciela coming up. Um, And I don't think our parents utilized her the same as some of our aunts and uncles, to be honest. I know I have one memory of Graciela coming up to assist with Raquel's brother and to do a cleansing ceremony for that family that I, that I don't have a lot of insight into candidly and probably can't speak accurately about, but I have a memory of mom going to assist and coming back to our house full of energy and us needing to like, douse her head with water and her having had an ecstatic experience at at their house and the specific focus of that trip being somebody in their household needing needing support i also have a distinct memory of being physically um at the house of aunt lupe who was utilizing the services of graciela as well and some byproduct of physically being there it was like oh why don't you get a reading too it wasn't like a (laughs) wasn't like a well supported I would say experience of ceremony now that I've done ceremony as an adult it was more like oh you're here too why don't you spend some time with Graciela and she did she kind of looked at me and said something about uh, la mujer blanca and it wasn't translated for me and it wasn't explained to me. And frankly, I, I took away a deep, deep fear that I had, was somehow um, touched by, like, the Lady of Death. Oh, I, can see, I can see how that would be a little bit destabilized thing. Yeah. And then I think the last experience with Graciela, there was one more. It was just my dad's. I think dad had stories about being assisted by whether it was Graciela was it or somebody else. At Aunt Rachel's house? I just not just story him telling stories of like when he was in football and needing to be healed and how these alternative healers would would help do chiropractic work and massage work and put him back together um, when traditional medicine didn't. So like those are like the three 
instances I have, like, in my head. I don't actually, other than that, I don't have a memory of being invited into ceremony or going to. I just remember she would come up and frequent some of our aunts and uncles' houses. And so, and that mom would sometimes go to those ceremonies. Uh, aside from that one instance where she talked about the Mujer Blanca. And so what came up for me when I was doing this holotropic breath work, which was quite interesting, is that I had an out-of-body experience where I went out of my body and I floated up and I was being held by three women in white. And they were covered in shrouds. And one of them had my feet, and one of them had my head, and one of them had my knees. And I had an extreme sense of peace. Everything felt wonderful. And I didn't want to go back to my body. Everything was fine. And they were kind of like, you know, you've got to go back to your body. You've got to get back down there. And I came out of it with this, with three women in white kind of just in my head. And it made me think of this memory from ages ago where I asked mom finally, I said, hey, do you have this memory? I was with Graciela at Aunt Lupi's and she said something like La Mujer Blanca. And mom explained, oh yeah, that's like her guide and it's like a positive imagery and it's like a good thing or something to that effect. But mom was basically like, oh yeah, yeah, it was like a really good thing to show up. And I was like, oh, well, thanks for telling me that, you know, <laughs> 40 years later. Thanks for contextualizing it <laughs> thanks, 30 years please. later. Whatever this like white woman <laughs> is in Spanish, I don't speak. You know, maybe they did, you know, as who knows as a kid what you like hold on to. It was so awesome. So it is quite interesting. I do think like, I, I, I think... We didn't actually have a lot of ceremony growing up. We had exposure to the concept of it and this idea that somebody was coming through. But I don't remember us ever hosting a ceremony in our home or hosting Gracia in our home. I remember mom having certain experiences when she went and participated and then bringing those narratives back. Yeah, and I think part of the reason why I am struggling so much as an adult with ceremony is I think because I didn't have a good context for it growing up. I want to build that into my life and into my family life for my children so that they have, I think, I think ceremony is really important. You know, it's a community event. It's even if it's a small community, even if it's, if it's a small group of people, I think it's an opportunity to come together and kind of collectively, collectively anchor yourself in common values. And church, I think, the Christian church has tried to take on that role and been like, you come here every Sunday and we anchor ourselves in these values, right? Yeah. But like that role just never worked for me. The Christian value system and the Christian explanation of the world is to me, I mean, I had this idea when I was in my 20s. I went to a Catholic ceremony, I went to a Catholic church and I was like, this is basically just a funeral every <laughs> single fucking Sunday. It's a funeral. And, like, it doesn't tell me anything about my life now. It doesn't help me with any of my problems. It's just talking about how humanity is terrible. And there's this person who died for you, so you should be grateful. <laughs> and let's talk about his death every single week. And I just was like, nope, I'm not going back. I'm not doing it again. Like that, I moved beyond it. It's okay. I don't need this in my life anymore. And so I think that's why it's so hard to build it back is that we didn't have that model growing up of like a generative, giving, participatory ceremony that was aimed at growth <laughs> and aimed at health, right? 
our cultural context was this funeral. Yeah. Every Sunday about death and suffering and how you can like better yourself through suffering, not about connection and growth and honoring creation and the self. Yeah, I think I think to some degree what church offers is community in structure. So there's there is the idea of repetition of going back to the same place of seeing the same people. So it's almost like I mean I'll I'll say it, it's almost like whatever you say in the middle of blah 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 with the priest, then you leave and what do you have? You have a bunch of people that you've seen for the last like bazillion Sundays getting together and seeing each other and exchanging like what's happening in their life and helping each other out if they need help and going away. So like the magic I would say of organized religion is probably more in my opinion on the community side rather than on the scripture side. And unfortunately the scripture side is like, you know, a lot about, well, only certain people can speak to God and then only a certain, and it's a God and not a goddess. And Oh, it's only just one instead of, 15 and they have all and these rules for you and all these rules for you and like all these things so and and you know i don't know so so but you know all that to some degree you know, no one knows who's going to be right until they actually die which just makes it all kind of moot anyway so you're left with kind of the community. So like I, I, I can see a world in which certain people feel very comforted by just the the community provided through the practice of faith, whatever the faith is. And then there is an element of my own intellectual curiosity and my own self that's not satisfied with that, that wants to actually explore. And that's where Eastern philosophy for me carries so much more weight, this idea that people that the, the the doctrine is essentially asking you to meditate and explore for yourself and check in on various things that people have surfaced through lots and lots of years of self-exploration so i i think i like that i also i also don't believe you know to some degree that there is any specific one way to have like a god or goddess relationship or gods or goddesses relationship and so in that way it's almost like Physics is physics and science are kind of really the reality, and then how you interpret and contextualize that physical reality is going to be very personal. I always liked the book "I'm in Charge of Celebrations," which we had as a kid growing up. Um, we have it. Mom you guys, it for us. Yeah, yeah. I always liked this book because I felt like, oh, I want to be like that person. I want to be in charge of my celebrations. I want to be able to pick out what's sacred, you know, and what needs marking and passages of time. And when do we bring community together to do that? Um, with my, you know, becoming a mother, that was like a big thing of wanting to kind of mark that with my community and to host ceremony around it. And so having a parenthood ceremony, having a women's circle, having a parenthood party, all these things were much more important to me than baby showers and poopy diapers for me. And so, so like that, I, that book, I'm in charge of celebrations. It's just this gorgeous, it's set in the Southwest. It has this like hearkening back to like the American Southwest or indigenous spaces and places. I think, I I don't think the novelist is actually, I actually don't know who, who wrote it and if she's actually native at all. I think it's a man and I don't think he is. No, it's Bird Baylor. It's a woman. It's a woman. It's a woman. And she's from Arizona. I just don't know what her background is. 
I'll look it up for the show notes. I'll put okay. it in because I try and put the books that are mentioned during our conversations. Okay. I try and put them in the notes so that people can but I, find them. I always like that. I felt like we got that a little bit from mom where, you know, we practiced growing up. Like I, I feel very connected to Jewish faith because we practiced on Passover growing up. And the reason we practiced Passover was because mom believed in the message behind that remembrance that like, you know, people in bondage is incorrect and people should not be bonded and should not be slaves. And freedom is a basic human right. And that is the exodus of this, of, you know, the exodus from the pharaohs. That whole Passover celebration is around that idea of regaining freedom. And so... I have surprised so many Jewish friends by saying that my family used to practice Passover and we'd cook all the food and do the prayers. And my friends were like, what? Which... which That's so weird. Yeah, which I... Which, which is... But it's just, it's just... It is such a beautifully but, and powerful yeah, but also, statement. I mean, like, they were also like happy about that like that's that's really cool that's a nice honoring of the tradition yeah yeah i've had that and then there were times when i rejected it as a kid with mom like she'd be like let's do kwanzaa you know let's have hanukkah and christmas and kwanzaa and i'd be like i'm on i'm on celebration overload like let's not do that um yeah let's pick let's pick a few you know and so i would like kind of push back and like why do we have to have like five and within two months so i i like the book i'm in charge of celebrations because I think that's how I feel about life, that a sacred life, you kind of figure out which celebrations you want to have and how you want to honor different things. Um, and I and I actually believe becoming a mom, and I think you've done this beautifully, you start questioning, like, okay, what am I passing on to my kids and how am I passing it on? And, like, where can I find community that represents values that I believe in? And where is the doctrine that's being taught in those communities beneficial versus harmful and how do I how do I teach moral messages yeah so that actually perfectly tees up the question I was formulating which is you know have you thought more intensely about this as the time comes closer that you are going to become like well you're already a mom but that you're going to have a baby and that you're going to be moving into a different phase of life. And so you don't have to, if that's like too intensive a question, but, you know, how do, how do you anticipate that changing your personal spiritual practice? Um, or are there things that you want to bring into your life and into your spiritual practice with a child? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing is I was like, okay, what is what is a regular practice that I would like my child to be part of? And I kind of came back to Buddhism as something that I would like to be somehow part of their regular practice. And it's why I kind of went to, and it's an end of one, I finally made my way back to the the this Ampa meditation center in San Francisco in the mission, which practices a modern Buddhism and this new Kadampa tradition. So now do I know all the history behind it? No, but, <laughs> but it's, a, but it's close by and it's something I can get to regularly from my house and hopefully take my kid there <laughs> and have them have like a memory of a regular visit to a space that is contemplative and reflective. 
and talks about things like compassion um, and wisdom and how to be compassionate and how how to have right thought and right intention and right speech and right action. So that that has surfaced up as something. I've looked for more community-based places, like where would there be a lot of kids all learning Buddhist background and Buddhist tradition? You do have to go a bit farther out of San Francisco um, into the North North Bay or into the South Bay. It's harder to get there to find like weekend schools because I'm like, is it enough for this person just to dabble? Do they need more structured background? Would they benefit from more actual contextualization of the religion and culture behind it versus just kind of dabbling on a spiritual sense? That seems harder for me to provide, frankly, where I'm at, but I've kind of thought around that. Like, And then there's part of me that's like, it's great to do Buddhism, but it's not quite as fulfilling as when you go do like ecstatic dance or when you participate in chanting exercises, which is just music, movement, harmony, all these things are so important to being an embodied human being and to feeling things, um, being able to feel emotions and let them go and let them flow through you. And so I still haven't figured out how to incorporate kind of an ecstatic dance is something people should look up. What is ecstatic dance? It's, it's a spiritual practice of some sort of consistently moving your body until you move into ecstatic states, which kids could participate in ecstatic dance like there's no reason they can't so I I think I'll be still figuring it out but thinking through how can I give my child the experience of connection to their body to their mind to their soul on a regular basis and in a way that if they do go through like a darker period in their life, they can fall back on some of these practices or belief systems, or I would say capacity to kind of explore and find wonder. So that that's stuff I've thought about <laughs> to make me go back to meditation for the first time in a long time, structured meditation for the first time in a long time. Well, I think if nothing else, that's going to help you through years two, three, and four. <laughs> Really, what's important dealing with toddlers is being able to manage your own emotions because you can't control theirs. And so the only thing you can really control is your own reaction. And it's really hard. So you know, building that, that practice is really good and important. Um, and not managing, but like, you know, not becoming overwhelmed by yeah. your emotions uh, and your reactions to them. Is, is I think really important and one thing actually that you bring up you brought up when you talk about kind of moving in and out of the different spiritual practices that our parents explored when we were growing up you know it's instructive for me to remember that like I put so much care and thought and and, and intensity into like what does this mean and how can I give my kids this and structure this for them and then I have to remember that they're going to move in and out of this. This is going to be like the, like, sometimes it'll be important and cool. Like, you and I both really liked going to the meditation center, right? It's like yep. seven, 16 year olds waking up at like four o'clock in the morning to go up in yep. the pitch dark and meditate in a dark room. Like, it was pretty interesting. But, like, I think, you know, like so much of parenthood. It's do it for yourself, practice for yourself, focus on yourself, 
I mean, you're focusing on them, but like you can't make them enjoy the thing. You can't make them experience wonder, but you can provide opportunities in which they might experience wonder. And so it's creating the environment for them, but then retaining the wisdom to know that they're going to move in and out of their appreciation and participation of the environment that we make for them. Yeah, um, everyone's on their own journey. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. Like One thing we haven't talked about, which is instrumental probably, and I would say my last 10 years of spiritual exploration, which comes up when I talk about things like ecstatic dance or plant medicine or things like that, is what I would call the spiritual movement of the 60s. And this is funny because I was thinking about this. There's, you know, I and there's like, which is, which is not connected to, I would say, like indig- indigenous background or things like that, but is very no, much actually something I that tell you what it's connected to. That I, okay, it's that shocking. I'm influenced in, and part of my last ten years and a lot of the somatic therapy, somatic movement, ecstatic dance, Osho, Osho Ramdas, like these different kind of ex- explore, like different things that come up when you start exploring the 60s and the 60s movement is that like I, I like loved this I'm like oh my gosh if I were born in the 60s in my head like I'd be a flower child I'd be off on this flower child journey but it's also the time of civil rights and so for, for so for a lot of when when I share this with people I say you know there's privilege in being able to participate in the 60s on one end of the spectrum versus having to be kind of on the civil rights end of the spectrum and be fighting for civil rights and so I have very much enjoyed delving into what I would call the new age that's based a lot around kind of the 60s exploration of normalizing psychedelic experience and identifying like ecstatic experiences through through body, through movement, through meditation, through cultural appropriation and, and, and creation that's still alive today. Um, in a much more kind of, I would call it aware and woke and like, conscious way that certain things are not okay and certain things are. But I've, I have very much appreciated kind of delving into that. Another call, shout out to like a good recent movie is like Ram Dass Going Home, which was a, a really good book, a really good documentary about Ram Dass. I'm kind of in his twilight time of dying. And he was kind of a countercultural figure, contemplative, and also practicing kind of Eastern meditator towards the end of his life. And that movie is very good. So I, I think that that's a huge portion of what I would call my spirituality or my search on spirituality has also come from this like roots of the 60s. Yeah. So I think you're right. There's a lot of really good exploration in the 60s, but this is kind of a tangent. I was listening to this podcast called Tales from Aslantis, which is a fantastic podcast put together by two Latino scholars. And they kind of explore myths and pseudo histories that crop up within Chicano culture and Latino culture around various things. But one of the things that they talked about was the origin of kind of the back to the land 60s movement had its roots in German fascism hmm. because like in the the part of the German fascist movement like in the you know 30s 20s and 30s was like maybe it was earlier but it, it basically was like we're being we're, we're disconnected from the land and so you know 
uh, strong people are built on the farms and in the forests and kind of like it was linked to German nationalism <laughs> and like racism like so I think that as somebody who's been sucked in quite a bit to kind of the homesteading movement grow your own food make your own food kind of subculture you know there's there's a similar echo to today where you have kind of these echoes of the 60s where you have people homesteading and you have people making sourdough bread and you have people exploring psychedelics right and then you also have on the like far end of the homesteading you know homeo like homeopathic medicine you have a connection to fascism and the far right and white nationalism so like the crunchy movement has is in its at its fringes this overlap with white nationalism and this idea of kind of like traditional home values and connections to the land so it's really interesting to kind of see this connection in the 60s and then see kind of like this cyclical return to that those ideas kind of on both sides of the spectrum on the left progressive side and on, on the like alt-right nationalist side yeah there's the echoes of that now yeah yeah it's interesting because a lot of where yeah a lot of where i mean i do think there's this important thing if you're going to build a different world you can't be participating in the world it's very hard to be active in political action and political thought and be building a completely different world that's something i've learned like it's almost detracts like you get bogged down in like the realities of today when you're building a kind of a different sense of who you are in body and mind and soul and who your community can be um and then at the same time if you get too divorced from reality then the world you're building isn't really relevant or there's no bridges back to like pull people across so what i love about the kind of i would say 60s movement or this idea of like, I would call it dabbling in the 60s, just as much as you dabble in Eastern thought or dabble in things and pulling out what's meaningful to you is it's this idea of like really redefining your world engagement around love and connection as like a primary motivating force. So wherever this came from, to me, that's like the most important is like, how do I redefine my internal compass such that like love and connection are the primary motivating force? That, like, is a massive mental shift and the sense that, like, I am infinitely connected to the natural environment. Um, and I don't know, to me, that has nothing to do with, like, wherever, I don't know, the tangent of wherever these ideas come from. But when I think about people that I find, books that I find, like, I don't know, whether it's Ram Dass's musings or writings and... and his contemplation or whether what's what's his name who does the fruiting treat you know he says like we're just a we're we are an app we're like basically we're all just apples on this fruiting tree oh dude did i ever tell you about my dream well what did mom mom sends these to me. this is why i love mom she sends me these freaking people to listen to and they're great hold on well I had I had sort of a depressing dream <laughs> one time that kind of goes to this point. I had a dream that I was sitting and there was this like tree that was covered in ripe fruit. There were figs and each fruit was like 
a potential thing I could do, a path I could take, a, a, a person I could be. And they were all ripe. And I, but I had to pick one and I couldn't. And I was like watching them. And as I was, wa- as I was trying to figure out which one to pick, they started to rot <laughs> and fall off the branches. <laughs> And I just remember like freaking out in the dream. Like I'm watching them all rot around me and I can't pick one. Which now I know is probably a really deep anxiety dream. Ugh. But like goes to this point of like <laughs> pick pick a direction. They're all rich, they're all beautiful, they all have these things and like like pick the fruit in your life, move forward, right? Well, well Alan Watts okay, it's Alan Watts. Alan Watts, who's another like I would call it sixties conscious expansion philosopher who's phenomenal to read but has this description of us as like you know when you come to the realization that you are a tree like you are the same as a tree growing and you're not just the tree you're like the blossom on the apple tree and you're not just the blossom on the apple tree you're the fruit that's like growing and similar to the fruit like you're that you're the dying fruit the fruit that falls off onto the ground and like degrades into the ground and then you replant those seeds like into the ground and you become the tree again. And you are all these things simultaneously at once. And you are the universe as a blossoming apple tree continually cycling through this, this experience. He does it better justice. but And then his mom and I would say, and then you have to get up and put your pants on. <laughs> yeah, or or you or you like some people, you know, who's her Indian philosopher that she follows around? Yeah, yeah, the silent guy. What's his name? His the, with his big eyes. He like, didn't speak for like 60 years. Yeah, he just sat there. He's like, I'm going to let the worms eat me, you know? I'm just going to be under this temple and I'm just going to let the worms eat me because I'm fully in bliss and now I can let, leave my body behind. But like, you know, whether it's Alan Watts like these these thinkers like to me embody best better than any spiritual scripture I've come across <laughs> the actual experience I have of unification and connection to spirit and short of that it's probably poets and artists so Khalil Gibran right Lebanese poet but he you know you'd have to read the prophet right and it's it's a beautiful rendition of kind of how you live or the Sufi texts and the Sufi poets, you know, you've got Rumi and you've also got Hafiz and Hafez or Hafez is like the best at kind of embodying that sense of like the unknowingness of life, of the immensity of life, as well as the knowingness and specificity of life all in one. Those things are so much better captured in in my experience by some of these more, I would call it 60s-esque, transcendent, or um, maybe longer, you know, Sufism is a huge history, but some of these more ecstatic, Ecstatic transcendent cultures and and, um, philosophers than any kind of quote-unquote organized religion. Well, unfortunately... I have to say our time is up because I have to move on with my afternoon, but I'm going to leave it there because I think there was a lot in that last, well, there's a lot in the last (laughs) half, but this is why I love talking with you, dude. And um, hopefully all of my technology worked and all of our conversation got captured 
and all seven people who listen to my podcast will be able to share in the wisdom that you express today. But thank you. This was really nice, and I'm so glad that we got together and talk about this. Well, I love you, and I can't wait to see what, what you do with it. So have a wonderful day, and you're always such such a wonderful example for me. I love having you as my older sister. Thanks, dude. I like collaborating together on life. You inspire me also. Love you. You, know, you really live your whole self, and it's been really beautiful to watch you grow into that kind of solidity of self. And you share so much with everybody. Thank you. I love you. Love you. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Okay, bye.